We've been working our way verse by verse through the Gospel of Mark. And today the intensity gets ratcheted up several notches. Several notches. If you'll turn with me now to Mark chapter 8, we're going to look at verses 27 through 38. 27 through 38. If you don't have your Bible with you, these verses are in the bulletin. Verse 27, Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Peter answered, You are the Messiah. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul. If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. This is God's word. Let us pray together. Father, thank you for these words. But more than that, thank you for the word who not only spoke these words, but is here in this room with us, speaking these words to our hearts today. And we ask you, Father, in humility that these words would go way down deep in our souls. They would cut us, that they would crush us, and that they would raise us anew in your Son's mercy and forgiveness and love so that we can walk we can walk in the new light of Jesus your son and it's in his name we pray amen everything in the first 8 chapters of Mark's gospel has revolved around the question who is Jesus who is this person 
And here in our passage today, Peter gives us the right answer. He gives the right answer. He says to Jesus, you are the Christ. You are the Messiah. Now the word Messiah or Christ means not just a king, but the king. The long-awaited king to end all kings. The king to whom all other kings will bow the knee. And Jesus confirms his identity as the king of kings. But then immediately turns around and explains his mission as the king of kings. And it caused quite the stir and continues to do so to this day. Jesus said to Peter and his disciples, Yes, I am the Messiah. I am the king. But I am not at all the king that you were expecting. In our text today, Jesus teaches two enormous truths about his kingship. Let's look at them together. Number one in your outline today. Number one in your outline today is the crucified king. The crucified king. Let's read verses 31 and 32. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this. As you know, Jesus told many parables in his ministry. But this isn't one of them. Verse 32 says that he spoke plainly about this. He didn't mince words. He said the Son of Man must suffer and die. Now, who is this Son of Man? The Son of Man. Well, this was Jesus' favorite name for himself. It's the name he used more than any other. But this name does not refer to his humanity, but actually the opposite. It refers to his deity. You see, this name comes straight from Daniel chapter 7 in the Old Testament. And in that prophecy in Daniel 7, there was a reference to, quote, like to one like a son of man. To one like a son of man. A divine figure who will come and put everything right with the world. And if there's any doubt as to the, to the divine nature of the son of man, just look at verse 38. Verse 38. If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation... The Son of Man will be ashamed of them when He comes in His Father's glory with the holy angels. The Son of Man is clothed in the Father's glory and surrounded by the angels of heaven. Okay, well, this is the kind of king the Jews were expecting. That's who they were expecting. They were expecting the king who would come and kick Rome's butt. Remove them from Israel and restore the nation. 
So they were on board with that. The problem is, Jesus also says in this very passage that the Son of Man, this King of all kings, must suffer and die. And Jesus is here bringing together two ideas that had previously never been brought together. Never. Never has anyone connected suffering with the Messiah. No one. Now, there are several places in the Old Testament that talk about a mysterious suffering servant of God. There are several places. But no one ever in history thought that the suffering servant would be the Messiah. And why would they? The Messiah was supposed to come and defeat evil and injustice. How could someone who's supposed to defeat evil and injustice be a victim of evil and injustice? That makes no sense. And so no one had ever put these two ideas together until now. And that's why we're told that the very second Jesus declared this, Peter harshly rebuked him. Look at verse 32. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Now, the word rebuke here in the Greek is very strong. It's the same word that Jesus used to rebuke demons when he would cast them out of people. This is a harsh rebuke from Peter. Now, why is Peter so freaked out? Why does he do this? Well, he's so freaked out because since he was a babe on his mother's knee, Peter like all the other Jewish boys and girls, had heard about the Messiah King who would come, take the throne of Israel, and set all things right. And so, when Jesus says He's going to the cross instead of a throne, Peter thinks it's blasphemy. It's blasphemy. And who could blame him? Who could blame Peter? Do you know what the cross meant in the first century? Do you know what it meant? The cross was the epitome of weakness and shame. Now, there were plenty of heroic and strong ways to die back then that would leave the dead honored and revered. But crucifixion wasn't one of them. It wasn't one of them. Crucifixion was the most humiliating death imaginable. To be stripped naked by the Romans, to then carry a cross through the narrow streets of Israel while being spit on and laughed at 
by the citizens and then hung up high for the entire city to watch you die. That was the most excruciating and embarrassing death in the world. And so for Peter, this is absurd. It is absurd for Jesus to even mention a death like that. And Jesus says that not only is it not absurd for the Son of Man to be crucified, but that the Son of Man must be crucified. He must be. The word must, used here twice, is one of the most significant words in the entire Bible. It is humbling for me to right now even attempt to explain to you just how significant it is. I told my wife how I struggled with this all week. This is a very awe-inspiring text. And it has, it has driven me to the ground. Trying to find a way this week to explain to you the significance of the word must here. You see, Jesus is not saying, I am going to be crucified. I am going to suffer. I am going to die. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, I must suffer. I have to be crucified. It is absolutely necessary. But that begs the question, why? Why? Why is it absolutely necessary for Jesus to suffer and to be crucified? Well, the answer to that question has been thought about for 2,000 years. Hundreds of books have been written about it. And tens of thousands of sermons have been preached about it. There is a lot that could be said in answer to that question here that I do not have time for. So right now, I will just give you what I think is one extremely important overarching answer. That I think all the other answers come under this umbrella if you will. So let me give you that all-important one umbrella answer to the question, why must Jesus be crucified? A theologian named William Vanstone wrote a book where he makes some really profound observations about love. He says that all people and in all times, even children can tell the difference between fake love and true love. Everyone can tell the difference. He says that in fake love, your goal is to use the other person to fulfill your own happiness. That's the goal. 
So your affection for the other person is therefore conditional. It's conditional. It's only there if the other person is doing what you want, fulfilling your needs and making you happy. It is only conditional. And it is also non-vulnerable. It is non-vulnerable. You hold back quite a bit in the relationship so that you don't get hurt if something goes wrong. So, fake love is conditional and non-vulnerable. But, true love is the opposite. It's the opposite. The goal of true love is to use yourself to fulfill the other person. True love is both unconditional and vulnerable. True love is willing to be hurt. And with true love, it's unconditional. It doesn't matter what you do. The love is still there. The affection is still there. It is unconditional and it is vulnerable. And everyone can tell the difference. Everyone. I mean, think about it. It doesn't take very long for you to tell that you're being used, does it? It doesn't take super long for you to tell that you're being used by another person. Now, we all despise that. We despise being used. And all of us yearn for true love. It's why almost every movie, every poem, every song, every grand story is about true love. It's what we all long for. But then Dr. Van Stone makes an important statement about this. He says that sadly, though we all desire to be truly loved, no one is actually capable of it. No one is capable of giving us true love, at least not all the way. Possibly the closest humans can come is a mother's love for her children. But even that isn't perfect love. It isn't perfect. Deep down, we all desperately desire perfect love. We are starving for someone to know our deepest flaws and love us to the skies anyway. But sadly, no one is capable of it. And this leaves all of us at some level insecure and unfulfilled. It is an unwritten but well-known truth that no one loves us the way we desire. Well, almost no one. What if I told you that nobody who has ever lived can give you true love. Nobody except one. 
one person can. What if I told you there is someone who knows you fully? He knows all of your deep, dark secrets that you haven't told a soul. He knows all of your sins and all of your flaws, and He loves you to the skies. He loves you unconditionally. That none of your failures or flaws affect His love for you one iota. None. And what if I told you that this person is radically vulnerable to you? Radically vulnerable. That he's not afraid of being hurt by you. In fact, he knows that he will be. He knows that he will be hurt by you. And that doesn't affect his love for you either. He is happy to be hurt by you. It doesn't affect his love for you, not even in the slightest, that you will hurt him. And what if I told you that the person who loves you this way is the most important person in the universe? He's the most important person who exists. How would that change your life? How would that change your life? Wouldn't true love from a person like this just melt away your insecurities? And wouldn't it fulfill your life and give you a radical confidence such that you could never have dreamed? My friends, this is why our king had to die. This is why he must suffer. The hymn writer said, He left his father's throne above, so free, so infinite his grace emptied himself of all but love and bled for Adam's helpless race. Don't you see? Jesus had to die for you because he is perfect love. He is love incarnate. He is love in the flesh. On Christmas morning, 2,000 years ago, love was born to us. Perfect love was born in a manger. Jesus is perfect love, and so he died for you. He suffered for you because that's what perfect love does. That's what perfect love is, and that's what perfect love does. I have good news for you this morning. You have a love that is unending, unwavering, unchanging, and so infinitely powerful as to provide joy and fulfillment for you for the rest of eternity.
the rest of eternity. You may not realize it, but you actually do have the love that you have always desired. This makes Christianity completely unique. Completely unique. Other religions describe God as being loving in a very general way. But not like this. Not like this. Allah is sitting up in heaven with his arms folding. Just stoically observing the world. But not our God. Only Christianity claims God's love is unconditional. Wholly apart from what we do or don't do. And only Christianity claims God became radically and shockingly vulnerable for us. Allah is not willing to get his hands dirty, but our God is. Our God was born in the filth of a manger. And he died the most excruciating and humiliating death imaginable to save us. He did it for you. And he did it for me. Because he's perfect love. He is perfect love. So, each of us have perfect love. The next question is this. What does this perfect love do to us? What does it do to us? That brings us to the second and last point in your outline. The crucified followers of the king. The crucified followers of the king. Let's read verses 32 through 38. Verse 32, he spoke plainly about this. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then he called the crowd to him, along with his disciples, and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when He comes in His Father's glory with the holy angels. Okay, so Peter has just given the right answer to Jesus' question. Who am I? He's just given the right answer. He's declared Jesus to be the long-awaited Messiah. And we see in Matthew's longer telling of this story that Jesus is thrilled with Peter. He is thrilled with this answer. But in the very next scene, Jesus grinds Peter into the dust, giving him the harshest rebuke he's ever given anyone. 
<laughs> right in the next scene. He calls Peter Satan. Satan. Why? Why? Because when you try to take Jesus off the cross, you're working for the devil. You're working for the devil. And many, many religions and people and even Christians and Christian pastors do this today all the time. They do it all the time. Pastors treat the Bible as if it were Aesop's fables. Just a collection of moral stories to make us good little boys and girls. Or pastors treat the Bible like a book of life tips. They have sermon series on how to have a better marriage, or how to have better finances, or how to have better children. And they're all doing the devil's job for him. They're doing the devil's job for him. The devil can just kick back and relax. Christian pastors are doing his job for him. Hear me today. If you don't hear anything else, hear at least this. The Bible is not Aesop's fables. It is not a book of life hacks. From beginning to end, it is a book, a grand story of a crucified king. It is the story of a crucified king from Genesis to Revelation. This is why Spurgeon famously said, leave out the cross and you've killed the religion of Jesus. He said elsewhere, if the cross is not in your sermon, then don't call it a sermon. Don't call it a sermon. You can call it a pep talk. You can call it moral instruction. That's fine. Don't you dare call it a sermon because it ain't. It ain't. Christianity is a cross-shaped religion from beginning to end. And Peter's problem in our story today is that he doesn't yet understand that. Like most of us, Peter was operating in a the theology of glory. He was saying, Jesus... Come on, Jesus, we can do this. We can do it. We can overcome our enemies and bring justice to our land. If we come up with the right schemes and give it our best effort, we can be heroes. We can save ourselves. The sad, tangible example of this mindset is Peter here actually getting in front of Jesus. Did you see that? And leading him off to the side. 
What a great picture of all of us that is. We take Jesus by the hand and show him where we want to go. We lead him off to the side. And we take Jesus and we show him the ladder of success we would like to climb. Jesus, here's what I would like. Can't you just give me a little push up this ladder? I'd like to have a big church. I'd like to be a famous preacher. I'd like to write a bestseller that all the pastors in America would buy. Or I would like a two-story house with 2.5 kids and a nice minivan and SUV in the suburbs there just outside of town. That's what I would like, Jesus. Can you, can you give me a push? And what does Jesus say? Get behind me. Get behind me. I'm the leader here, not you. And I am not leading you to a throne. I am leading you to a cross. You see, we operate, just like Peter, in a theology of glory, trying to work our way, rung by rung, up the ladder of worldly and spiritual success. But Jesus operates in a theology of the cross, working his way down, 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 down the ladder. Befriending the sinner and the outcast. Loving his enemies. Serving the least. Washing the disciples' feet. And ultimately dying on the cross. And so when Jesus comes to us with the call in verse 34... Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. We say, no thanks. You see, I've got this ladder I'd like to climb. I've got these dreams I would like to see come true. And so we politely decline Jesus' offer of the cross. And so, in an act of incalculable love, after our denial of the cross, Jesus does just the most wonderful thing. He kills us. He kills us. You see, He doesn't begin where we already are. He doesn't work with what we've got. 
He doesn't size us up, diagnose our strengths and weaknesses, and implement a self-improvement program. In fact, what we deem as our strengths, Christ most often considers them weaknesses because they breed pride. And so Jesus does the most wonderful thing because we won't go to the cross. He takes us by the hand and he pulls us up onto his cross with him. As the Apostle Paul said plainly, I am crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. We co-die with Jesus, co-bleed with him, are co-buried with him, and then are co-resurrected with him. We won't do it, so he does it for us. God is not in the business of making us better. He's in the business of making us dead. Dead to our misplaced worldly aspirations. Dead to our selfish dreams and dead to our self-righteous religious projects. So that he can then raise us to a brand new cross-shaped life in Jesus. But when does all this happen, you ask? I don't remember any of this taking place. <laughs> well, I'm glad you asked. In Romans chapter 6, Paul gives us the answer. He says that when you went down into the waters of baptism, there you died. You were crucified with Christ. And when that preacher took you by the hand and brought you up out of the water, there you were resurrected with Christ. A brand new creation. When Martin Luther would counsel people in his church and they would say, you know, Dr. Luther, I'm just struggling with this. Or I just can't seem to get over that. Luther would ask, who is this I you speak of? Who is I? I mean, you're a believer, aren't you? They would say, well, yeah, yeah. And he would say, okay. Then there is no I. I is dead. <laughs> it's dead. There is now only Christ in you. And he is using every trial, every pain, every sorrow, every struggle in your life for his glory. All of it. All of it. Don't you see? It is no longer I who work and play, but Christ who works and plays in me. It is no longer I who love and believe, but Christ who loves and believes in me.
It is no longer I who am a husband and father, but Christ who is a husband and father in me. Our union with Christ, virtue of our co-death and co-resurrection with Him is now what defines us. It is who we are. And it is how our heavenly Father sees us. And it is how the Spirit enables us to see ourselves. I pray that He's doing it right now. I pray that the Spirit is showing you right now that you are not who this world says you are. You are not that person is dead. You are not. You are a brand new creation. You are a blood-bought child of the Most High King. And there is nothing anyone can do to change that. Let's pray together.